It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. From QE to QT. As the world's central banks move from quantitative easing to quantitative tightening, what does it mean for investors? Merrin Somerset-Webb joins me to discuss. Bulls and bears, hares and tortoises, and even a dead cat bounce. The investment world is just riddled with animal references, but Micah Curry of Fidelity has spotted a new animal analogy in the stock market, the distinction between hedgehogs and foxes. And finally, it's been a big week for some of Britain's biggest fund managers. We assess the differing fortunes of Nick Train of Lindsell Train and Neil Woodford of Woodford Investment Management. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about finance and personal investing. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, bringing you this week's news in downloadable form. Ever since the financial crisis, the world's central banks have provided the monetary system life support in the form of quantitative easing. This may well have saved banks and governments even from going bust, but the unintended consequences will be more keenly felt as the policy starts to be unwound. So said Merrin Somerset-Webb in her FT Money column last week, and she joins me on the line now to discuss. Welcome, Merrin. Hello, Claire. Always lovely to have you on the podcast. Oh, thanks. But it was a rather sobering sign-off to your column last Saturday. A lot of my columns are quite sobering, I'm afraid. But this one, yes. I mean, what I'm trying to do is remind everybody of the very, very simple point that a lot of what QE was designed to do was to push up asset prices. We know that because the central bankers told us that. They told us that the main transmission mechanism for QE to get to the real economy was via the wealth effect, pushing up asset prices, making people feel better so they would go out and spend and generally feel more confident. Now, it makes logical sense to think that if the main impact of QE was to push up asset prices, the main impact of QT, quantitative tightening, should be to have the equal and opposite effect, i.e. to pull down asset prices back to where they would have been had the extra money not been pumped into the stock market and the uh, property market and the art market and the classic car market. Wine, we could go on. Wine market, we could go on indefinitely, right? Well, let's backtrack a bit. So... What impact on inflating asset prices do you think could QE have had on its own? It's quite hard to discern. It's very hard to discern. It's very hard to discern because one thing to remember is that when QE started, quite a lot of assets were relatively cheap anyway. 
So, you know, uh, equity markets across the world were extremely cheap when QE started. And you could argue, although I wouldn't, but other people could, that a lot of property markets were looking relatively cheap, or at least that they had fallen a lot into QE. So you could argue that. However, what we see now is that most markets are, are extremely expensive. And there has been quite a lot of analysis into looking at what the impact of QE has actually been. And I wrote in my column, I think, about um, analysis done by the Bank of England, one of their working papers, mm. where they suggested, for example, that the quantum has been something in the region of 20, 22 to 25%, depending on which asset class you're looking at. So an equal and opposite effect would obviously um, be pretty nasty for everyone who thinks that stock markets will never fall again. Well, exactly. I mean, and it may be too simplistic to think asset values could deflate by the same amount that they have inflated. But regardless of that, I see further evidence in your column that you think that UK domestic equities are the standout piece of good value in markets, regardless of what QE is doing. Yes, absolutely. I and mean, you have to you have to remember that in the end, when you are investing, the returns you will make are almost 100% dependent on the price that you pay at the beginning. And if you buy into, say, for example, American tech stocks, even after the volatility we've seen recently, you're paying a very high price and you have very high expectations. If you're buying into the American market as a whole, even if you take out technology, it's still not particularly uh, reasonably priced. The UK, on the other hand, particularly domestic UK, is very, very inexpensive. It's one of the one of the most disliked, possibly even the most disliked asset class among institutional fund managers across the world at the moment. And you constantly hear stories if you're moving around the fund management world about people, you know, move, re- moving stocks still out of the UK into other countries on the basis that they're concerned about A, rising interest rates in the UK, which they probably should be concerned about, and B, the Brexit effect and the Corbyn effect. And we've talked about this before. And as you know, I, I believe that the Corbyn effect is rather more intense than the Brexit effect. But nonetheless, all these effects are added together to make people concerned. However, if you now go into the UK and you buy domestically orientated stocks, you will get one of the only deals left in the global market. And whatever we may say about QE uh, uh, taking taking froth out of the market and bringing markets down by 10, 20, 30 percent, whatever it is, that doesn't take away from the fact that these are good companies at a reasonable price. And one of the things I put in the column it was a reference to um, to BIC, to pens and the enormous productivity uh, gains you've seen in, uh, across the industrial world. Oh, so yes. Do tell us ago, the, the BIC yeah. facts. If, if I love this that, fact. 70 brilliant. years ago, a single BIC pen cost the equivalent of one week's wages for the average secretary. These are done on, on French wages, by the way. Uh, today, you can buy a pack of 20 for a tenner. So that works out to about 0.3% of the weekly earnings of a secretary should one be able to find a secretary anywhere these days. And that's just a little reminder. And you can choose anything for this. You can choose light bulbs or car or whatever. But, you know, it just shows you uh, the stunning rise in productivity over time. And so it's dangerous to move out of equity markets altogether because of monetary flows, when really, if you want long term wealth, you've got to be invested somehow in in the uh, wealth and prosperity creating machine that is the corporate world. Well, thanks very much there to Merrin Somerset Webb on sparkling form as ever. You can read her full column online now at ft.com slash money. And there'll be even more thoughts on a different theme from Merrin in this weekend's FT Weekend newspaper on sale from Saturday. Stock markets are famous for their animal spirits, but they also present a veritable zoo of animal lexicons. Bulls and bears, hares and tortoises, the odd dead cat bounce, and even, if you ask the FT's Katie Martin, a vomiting camel. But the question we're asking investors this week is, are you a fox or a hedgehog? Our investment columnist Micah Curry of Fidelity has coined these terms to describe different types of investor behaviour, and she joins me now on the line to discuss. Welcome, Micah. Hi, Claire. So, foxes and hedgehogs, where did you get this one from? (laughs) 
Well, the idea was first, well, not first muted, but it was really developed by the light philosopher Isaiah Berlin. And he borrowed this from Greek poet who said, a fox knows many things, but a hedgehog knows only one big thing. And he really applied this to the world of philosophy, seeing uh, hedgehogs uh, as the type of philosophers who view the world through a single big idea, while foxes have a more nuanced view of the world, drawing on a wide variety of experiences and influences. So he classified Shakespeare as a fox and Plato as a hedgehog. So interesting, but in the modern world, how would you apply that to investment? What are the characteristics of the fox versus the hedgehog? Well, I see the foxes as very nimble, flexible, adaptable investors who tend to look around for different ideas and opportunities and exploit inefficiencies. The hedgehogs have a more clear, very well-defined and specific investment philosophy, and they tend to invest using this overarching theory or theme. Now, hedgehog fund managers typically are the ideal of your marketeer and salesperson because they have this very clear investment philosophy which is unchanging, easy to understand and explain and ultimately to sell. Uh, it's a bit of a generalization, but hedgehogs tend to be very articulate and persuasive as to why their big idea is a good one. And the media and the retail investor fall in love with hedgehogs because they have conviction, they have clarity, and when they do get it right, the results can be spectacular. They come with good stories, and as we know, we all love a story. And, and names that really stand out here are names like Nick Train of Lin, Lindell Train and Terry Smith of Funsmith. I'm sure Foxes, he'll be delighted to know that he <laughs> is a hedgehog. <laughs> Foxes tend to be a bit harder to understand because they don't stay still long enough for most people to grasp what they do. Now, they will have your typical investor presentations with the detailed breakdowns about what they hold in the portfolio, what they've recently bought and sold, and always emphasize that their decisions are underpinned by a very clear process, they generally don't have that billboard appeal of investor hedgehogs. Old Mutual is a classic fox house. They use a quantitative process and they don't have any big ideas. They just follow the money and try to understand what type of stocks will outperform in different market conditions. Okay, so given the current state of the market and the global economic outlook, should we be looking to bag a hedgehog or hunt a fox? And which type of investment um, style is perhaps best suited to the current climate? Well, this is where the debate gets really fiery. But I would argue in recent years when we've seen those bond proxies, those high-quality companies that have bond-like characteristics do really well, those quality hedgehogs like Terry Smith and Nick Train have prospered. But as I pointed out in a column not too long ago, with the classic bond proxies coming under pressure, and we saw it this week with record Ben Kaiser, with inflation returning to the fore as the oil price spikes, and with bond yields rising, the relative appeal of that part of the market is questionable. We are getting closer to the end of the cycle, and this is where foxes could do very well, exploiting market inefficiencies, finding the bargains, and identifying the winners. And, and a key point here is in the age of digital disruption, you need a bit of that eclectic and nuanced thinking of foxes who can identify which companies are going to be the losers from structural change, and the retail sector is a classic example, but also identify the drivers of change and, and pick some ways to play this. 
you know, avoid the losers and also recognize where the market has unduly overreacted. Uh, one example that a manager gave me this week, a manager called Lee Hemsworth at Fidelity, who I would also class as a classic fox, is a business like Superdry. The stock has fallen over 20% since early January, but there's no significant negative news. Okay, well, thanks very much there to Micah Curry, Investment Director at Fidelity. You can read her column online now at ft.com slash money or in the money section this Saturday in the weekend FT. And let us know, are you a fox? or a hedgehog. It's been another difficult week for Neil Woodford, the high-profile British fund manager, as investors grow increasingly impatient about the performance of his patient capital trust. Covering the news for us this week is FT Money's Kate Bearley, who joins me in the studio now. Welcome, Kate. Hi. So, a bit of a double whammy of bad news for Mr Woodford and his investors this week. Uh, yeah, Woodford was hit with the news that biotech stock Prothena, uh, which Woodford Investment Management owns a third of, is halting the development of its Lee's drug after failing clinical trials. So that stock is a major holding for Woodford um, across the company and in each of his funds, and particularly in patient capital. Now, the company shed two-thirds of its market value on Monday, which resulted in a major paper loss for Woodford. And that news just came a day before he reported his annual results for patient capital. And that's the investment trust that he set up in 2015 to invest in early stage businesses. So over the year, shares were down 7.2% in patient capital. And he's taken some very big losses on companies like Allied Mines and Circassia, which had a high profile failure of a cat allergy drug back in 2016. Both of those translating into losses of more than £22 million over the year for the fund. But then he was very upfront when he set this fund up that if you're investing in early stage companies... Some of them will suffer um, early stage setbacks, but others will do very well. And um, to be fair to him, he has picked a couple of winners. Purple Bricks is one that stands out yeah. to me. Well, he would say that he has, he has four um, companies specifically worth more than a billion pounds uh, in the portfolio and lots more. He says that will be multi-billion dollar companies you know, in the years to come. And that is the nature of, of investing in these yeah, early stage companies, particularly biotech, where you know, drugs can, can live or die on, on clinical trials, but the potential for growth is huge. And away from the Patient Capital Trust, um, one of his other big holdings, Capita, um, this week has announced news of a cash call. So lots of analysts have had lots to say about Neil Woodford's performance. Um, what does the company have to say in response? And what are his investors saying? Uh, well, so on Prathina, he has, you know, came out on Monday and said, yes, look, this is very disappointing, said that they had high hopes for this drug and this is a big blow. Uh, he says, though, that, you know, this drug wasn't everything to Prathina. They, they have a good pipeline for early and mid-stage drugs, good technology platform and world-leading specialisms in other areas. So he's saying, you know, still backing Prathina. And he would point to, you know, a range of successful companies in his portfolio, things like Purple Bricks um, and Municor and others. But elsewhere, investors are growing very impatient for results and are kind of concerned that some of these stock-specific issues, uh, like things like Allied Mines, Provident Financial Capita, um, have been cropping up very frequently, um, which is a concern. Well, thanks very much there to Kate Bearney. You can meet more on that story in FT Money this week. But that's it from the FT Money show. To get in touch with our team of writers or ask one of our experts to look into a financial dilemma, please email us our address money at ft.com or tweet us at FT Money. And don't forget you can read all of the articles mentioned and more on our website ft.com slash money. We'll be back next week at the usual time. Goodbye. 
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.